You are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host, Peter Bandatini. Here, I interview neuroscientists and discuss their work as well as the latest developments, issues, and controversies in the field of brain mapping. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Alex Fornito, who has been a leader, educator, and innovator in brain imaging. A major emphasis of his work concerns understanding foundational principles of brain organization and their genetic basis, characterizing brain connectivity disturbances and psychiatric disorders such as schizophrenia, and mapping how brain networks dynamically reconfigure in response to changing task demands. He's currently the Sylvia and Charles Vertel Foundation Senior Research Fellow, Professor of Psychological Sciences, and Head of the Brain Mapping and Modeling Research Program at the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health. He also leads his Neural Systems and Behavior Lab. He completed his clinical master's in neuropsychology and PhD in 2007 in the departments of psychiatry and psychology at the University of Melbourne before undertaking postdoctoral training in the department of psychiatry at the University of Cambridge under the auspices of the NHMRC training fellowship. And there he worked with Ed Bullmore. He's also co-authored a truly outstanding book uh, along with Andrew Zaleski and Ed Bullmore on network neuroscience titled Fundamentals of Brain Network Analysis. Uh, his collaborators are all over Europe, the US and Canada, and he's an active member of OHBM where he has recently been quite instrumental in establishing the virtual platform for the meeting. So in this podcast, we have a pretty wide ranging discussion, starting with just talking about his book a little bit, and then going into talking about uh, his pre-processing work, specifically trying to address and I think making really good progress in addressing this problem of physiologic noise and how to get rid of it. And then we go into uh, his main area, which is uh, connectomics, looking at the brain as a, a network, doing network modeling. And then we go into you know, his work sort of characterizing that and also looking at how they change with, with activation, how they change with disorders. The the genetic correlates of, of these network properties as well uh, that seem to show up in terms of, especially in terms of uh, uh, correlates with the hubs themselves, which are very different uh, than the other areas in the sense that they have a higher metabolism, they have slower hemodynamic or slower fMRI measured uh, dynamics as well. So, so that's the main part. Uh, then we talked about some of the limits of just understanding disorders uh, with network connectivity approaches. And one interesting insight there was that, was that um, uh, disorders travel along these networks and uh, either the networks show pathology uh, or the brain compensates or a little bit of both. Uh, maybe there's compensation and then pathology. So we talk a little bit about that. We talk about some of the his thoughts on the future of connectomics and how it might make a clinical impact. 
lastly, we wrap up with, uh, with talking about his role in uh, helping the uh, OHBM, the second iteration of the OHBM virtual meeting. Last year, it was um, uh, done very well, but done very quickly. And there were some uh, you know, changes that uh, probably were a good idea to make. And, and he was instrumental in, in sort of spearheading a lot of these changes. And you'll have a little bit of a preview as to uh, what the virtual setup might look like there. Virtual meetings in general um, are completely challenging, especially for international meetings of this size. And uh, I think he's done an amazing job sort of preparing this. So, and also virtual meetings might be here to stay. Even if, even if we go back to meetings, there might be hybrids. So we talk a little bit about that as well. So enjoy the podcast. Thank you. Okay, uh, Alex Fernito, thanks for coming on to this uh, podcast again. You're my first uh, second guest, second time visitor, uh, uh, very different context. This time we're talking about your work and, and uh, your contributions to OHBM, which we'll get to at the end with the virtual meeting. And, but I'd just like to, you know, I've been, I've been looking over your papers and uh, you know, you've been pretty, you've been very active in the field since about 2008. And you've been, you know, your, your trajectory in, in terms of uh, publications and, and whatnot has been, you know, completely upward and your impact has been huge. And, and I'd just like to ask, so how did you get started in this? What made you interested in, in this particular niche? Or was it just sort of something you sort of worked into? Like, what was your initial interest when you were younger? Oh, th thanks, Peter, and thanks for having me on again. It's a real pleasure, and uh, I'm a big fan of the podcast already, so it's a real privilege. Um, to, to be frank, uh, when I was in high school, I was not really interested in science at all, uh, and I think that was a product of having been taught science in a very dry way. Uh, so I entered university wanting to be uh, an author, funnily enough, and uh, enrolled in, I was planning on being an English major, but after one semester, I realized that that was not for me. And taken uh, psychology as a fallback and kind of got more interested in that and was intent on uh, forging uh, a path working as a clinician. Uh, and uh, in Australia, at the end of our undergraduate degree, we do a, a year uh, called honors year where we do a small research project. And I, uh, sort of stumbled into a, a group uh, led by Chris Pantelis, who was doing psychiatric imaging. And this was my first exposure to uh, MRI. I, and I worked on a simple project using uh, T1 weighted scans. And I just really loved it. It was a great team to work with, great environment. I loved the, the process. And so I thought, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll kind of do some clinical training along with a PhD. Um, and through that process, I just got more engaged in in my research um, and really got heavily into neuroimaging, the methods, thinking about brain connectivity and networks and uh, never looked back since. So it's been a bit of a circuitous route and uh, I guess I've been playing catch up ever since in a way. Well, um, well, it definitely doesn't seem like you've been playing catch up, but, but uh, and it's nice to see that 
you know, it, it seems that a lot of people actually write when they start out, it's, they're, they're not quite sure. They try things. It's, you know, what you said, you know, it's just worth, it's worth it to just, you know, to try different things. And usually, and always to be aware, usually it ends up being a circuitous route. And, and, uh, and that's, that usually works out if you keep you an open mind and you keep trying new things. But, and it's great that you, you know, a lot of it's serendipity. Uh, you, you, you end up with a good group that's really supportive and, and you go from there. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, uh, and it really does seem like, uh, I mean, your group, and, and it seems like there's, there's a certain network uh, within Australia that's actually really, really good. And it seems like you, you have a, a, something really good going there overall. Um, so just to, speaking of writing, um, I just want to start out with talking about your book uh, that you published a few years back, Fundamentals in, of Brain Network Analysis. And uh, I, I just have to say it's super, I mean, at least from my opinion, from, from looking at it, it's really clearly written. And, and it's, it's interesting. It's advertised in some places as a textbook, but it's much more readable than a textbook. I mean, it's sort of like you can just read it from cover to cover and it's engaging, it's interesting, it's, um, and it's, and it's conveys, yeah, it conveys the, the cutting edge concepts, but it does it in a way that you feel like, oh, this just all makes sense. So it's, so definitely writing talent uh, is going on there as well. So, <laughs> and, um, and yeah, definitely in science, I think I have to emphasize that, that, you know, people don't realize how much writing they do in science and, uh, um, and, I just have to congratulate you on that. I mean, um, yeah. yeah, thank you. I mean, I think our, our intention with that book was to um, try to provide an accessible introduction to network analysis techniques for people that don't have a background uh, on the one side in that area, uh, because there are some excellent network science textbooks, but that can be quite a steep learning curve for someone who doesn't have a background in, in physics or engineering or math. Um, but on the flip side, also for people with those backgrounds to show how these techniques can be applied in a neuroscientific context, uh, because although network science is quite general and can be applied to in lots of different domains, you know, the applications do have a lot of domain specific nuances. Uh, and so it was really trying to uh, uh, reach out to both of those audience. And I was really lucky to work with my co-authors, Andrew Zaleski and Ed Bullmore. Uh, who uh, obviously really uh, contributed a lot to try and get it into shape. Yeah, yeah I have to say also, um, I read Ed Bulmore's book a while back, um, The Inflamed Mind, I believe it's called. And once again, Ed, Ed is a talented writer as well. So I've struggled, uh, I've struggled myself. I've written a, a tiny book uh, recently on, on FMRI, just called FMRI and MIT Press. It's sort of like a small handbook thing, but. I really struggled. And the part of the reason why I struggled is because, um, you know, it, it's one of those things that you just need to block out time to do it. And, and just before we get into the other discussions of things, what was your strategy uh, for doing that? Because I'm always want to know about that. If anyone's writing a book, I mean, you need way more time, it seems, than, than what you think you need. <laughs> Yeah, that, uh, I don't know if I had a strategy. It was a bit of a hectic time at that period. So, you know, we'd, we'd had a schedule and we ended up falling uh, behind time. And then it all came due uh, at a period that coincided with the birth of my first child. Uh, and so maybe the solution was sleep deprivation. <laughs> um, you know, there were, there were many days of sort of rocking the... Uh, 
the seat with one foot and typing with the hands and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was just, uh, you know, as much as possible, it was really about trying to structure in extended unbroken stretches of time because I'm, I'm very similar. I find that I can't write a little bit for half an hour, then do something else, then come back to it. So it was really about trying to structure my diary in a way that gave me unbroken pieces of, uh, of time to, to get through it. Yeah, yeah. Let's, yeah, and there's nothing like a deadline, right? But unfortunately, with my book, the, the editor kept on pushing back the deadline saying, oh, you can get it done. Well, you know, if you need more time. And so that was probably a bad thing. <laughs> Yeah, rookie, rookie mistake. Uh, you, need, you need someone who's going to hold you to account. Right, right. And uh, I think it makes for a better book. I think actually it causes more coherence in your, in your writing. And like you said, these large blocks of time, I think are, are critical. Um, I've always been a bit of a crammer. So yeah, if I've got a bit of a deadline, it's... Uh... Well, that's, that's great. That's great. And, and uh, who knows, maybe there'll be a second edition. I don't know if, uh, you know... Um, Network neuroscience is evolving fast enough to add more on. Like, you know. Oh yeah, it, it certainly has. There's been a lot of development since the, the book has been published and we are talking about it. It's, it's a matter of finding the time. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. It is, it is something that we would definitely like to do. Okay, well, great, great. Um, so what I was hoping to do today is, uh, is talk a, a little bit about some of your work, uh, mostly about the connectomics work that you did. But I just, I have to mention that, I mean, you've obviously do a lot of other work with uh, structural MRI, with pre-processing and, and uh, functional MRI processing as well. And I, I couldn't help but notice a recent paper that you just published, um, or you just, it's out in neuroimage in, uh, uh, yeah, in 2020, on uh, identifying and removing widespread signal deflections from fMRI data, rethinking the global signal regression problem. And this, this is sort of near and dear to my heart in the sense that uh, um, you know, it's been an ongoing question of, and I just recently had a small discussion with uh, Michael Fox about um, you know, what to do. Uh, you know, why, why do global regression? Why is it a problem? Uh, but even if, you, even if you do that, and even if you try to use things like retro I-Core, it's still really hard, I found to, and I'm actually always puzzled over why retro I-Core, uh, this, you know, this basically uses the regressor from, from respiration and, and sometimes cardiac, why it doesn't work as well as it, as it does. And I think your work kind of hit upon why in some sense. I mean, you have, and why don't you just explain your uh, approach? I mean, it was really nice I think it starts with the carpet plots and and how you ordered them relative to their correlation with global signal regression. And it really captures all kinds of other things. So why don't you explain it a little bit? Yeah, yeah sure. I, mean, I think this work was largely motivated or inspired really by, by uh, some of Jonathan's power, Jonathan Power's work showing that um, you, know, you do have these really pervasive signal changes that affect nearly the whole brain and they're tied to variations in respiration. Um, and so historic, prior to that, I'd thought, well, you know, GSR is probably a decent thing to do because the networks you obtain with it are a lot more sensible, you know, keeping all the caveats with it in mind. But um, once, we, once we saw that, we thought, oh, wow, this is quite a problem. Uh, but we also thought, you know, there's got to be a better way than GSR, right? <laughs> there's, uh, and we were just playing around looking at the carpet plots and 
typically they are presented in a sort of pseudo random order, like the voxels are listed along the rows and they're sort of pseudo randomly ordered. Um, if you order them in different ways, you can start to see a, a lot of a lot more interesting structure. Uh, and we found that um, you could either order the, the voxels according to their correlation to the global signal or using some kind of hierarchical clustering. Uh, and we started to see that these widespread signal defect deflections were sometimes more complicated. So in some cases, you might get instances where half the brain is going one way, increasing signal, and half the brain is uh, decreasing signal. And in those instances, uh, GSR will be ineffective, right? Because yeah. the mean signal will be more or less zero. Yeah. Uh, and so you won't be removing much. And we found that um, visibly these were sometimes linked to head motion. Um, and so we thought at least some of these are probably related to noise. You can never be sure unless you've got really extensive recordings. The data we were looking at uh, didn't. And so we thought about, you know, how can we develop a method that might remove these and what happens if we remove them? So uh, we developed an approach based on a clustering technique called DB scan, which allows you to kind of pull out diffuse weakly connected clusters. Uh, and so that we sort of apply that uh, based on signal similarity between voxels that allows us to pull out these kind of representative signals of uh, voxels that have got different types of uh, signal fluctuations. And we were able to, we found that this approach could pick out, you know, uh, signals that were clearly noise with quite strange time courses. So, um, you know, early spikes and then a relatively flat uh, trace or, you know, other kind of weird and wonderful things that GSR would not be able to pick up. Yeah. Uh, so in the validation paper, we thought, okay, well, let's do this uh, and let's see how far we go. Now, the implicit assumption in the method is that these widespread signal fluctuations are noise, right? It's not being, a, a, and I can't, it's blind to whether there is a broad signal change that is signal or not. So we make that assumption and we thought, okay, well, you know, how far can we go if we try to remove all these structures? Are we left with anything? And uh, in that paper, we looked at three or four different data sets. And this was work led by uh, Kevin Aquino and Ben Fulcher, who uh, did a really thorough job. Uh, and we found that you, uh, had better denoising performance on, on a range of different uh, quality control metrics. Uh, but we also uh, had evidence that you had uh, better statistical sensitivity for, for example, pulling out resting state networks using ICA or mapping task-related activations. Uh, so it suggested that you know, removing these noise structures actually potentially improved your power. Yeah. The question is how far do you go? It's an iterative method yep. and the number of iterations is a free parameter. Uh, we just kind of <laughs> an arbitrary number. I think it was uh, either three or five in the original paper. Um, and so ideally we would be able to develop a, a principled way. We have found, even though that first analysis looked at four different data sets and the same parameters seem to work okay for all of those. In other data sets, we have found that uh, that can be too aggressive. And so the real trick is, is in trying to work out how far you go. And that's kind Good. of an open area. Yeah, that's a little bit um, right. That that last part, right? Too aggressive would mean what? Like you're um, reducing some of the actual signal um, in some sense. So, yeah, yeah. You end up with very weak correlations, not much uh, network structure. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So so um, uh, and yeah, that's actually still. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting because it does seem like 
if one could remove all the physiologic fluctuations, suddenly the, the sensitivity would go up tremendously. But then, right, you get this point where there is this weird mixing between physiologic noise and actual, you know, real neuronal related fluctuations. And, and then you have to. It's, it's a really, it's a really challenging problem because yeah. <laughs> sometimes those physiological variations will be actually tied to cognitively relevant events. Uh, and so there's always a concern that you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. That said, if you just look at a non-denoised car plot, carver plot, you see these huge signal changes and they're just going to dominate everything. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, finding the right middle ground, I think is, is, is still a big challenge for the field. Yeah, it's a, definitely. And I, but I think this really pushes things a little bit more. And, and yeah, no, I think that, um, and it sort of further highlights that there's intersubject variability of even physiologic noise. I mean, where these patterns emerge. And so it's, it's, it's more like anything, it's, it becomes more complicated than you first think. Um, <laughs> so, all right, well, well, that's, that was a nice, that was a nice piece of work that, yeah, that just recently came out. So, um, just switching gears completely. Well, not really completely, but uh, switching gears to connectomics. Uh, it's uh, your your main focus. Um, I, you know, I've been I've been following uh, pretty closely the literature, and we've been I've, my group does a little bit of this work. Um, I'm going to ask some sort of general high end questions first, just um, just to get a perspective. So, uh, you know, the 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 idea, and, and this is really nicely sort of brought out at the beginning of your talks, and actually it's, it's brought up by a lot of people, but still it's it, the whole concept of the, that the brain is, is both, you know, has segregation and integration. You have modules and the modules have to be connected. And, and this balance between segregation and integration really is uh, um, sort of hitting a sweet spot of, of, of energy and efficiency and, uh, and other aspects. Um, so the, the first question that comes to, to my mind is that, you know, we're limited with fMRI to study the brain at a certain spatial scale. And, and it's not, it, it actually is great that it works out that these modules, uh, appear to be, uh, at the scale of fMRI. Uh, does this concept, I mean, it seems like a, the, and, and even, you know, it goes back to even Cajal, you know, as you talked about, you know, balancing space, time, and material. Does this concept of, of segregation and integration, uh, how, how does it vary across spatial and temporal scale? I mean, for instance, if you went down to individual neurons or, you know, obviously you have columns, um, you know, does it break down? Is it, and, and where it does, it seems like there's principles to be derived in some sense uh, regarding that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's one of the kind of major unresolved questions. So, I guess you know when when you're asking about segregation integration, I, I guess you're referring to the you know the network architecture that can support those those two uh, functional properties. And so, what we've learned with uh, you know quite a large series of, of network neuroscience studies. Uh, by you know, people like Olaf Spawns and Martin Vandenhuvel and uh, Danny Bassett and their teams is that uh, uh, brain networks are modular in that uh, if we think of the brain as a collection of nodes or, or specialized regions, these uh, 
nodes can be decomposed into subsets of nodes that are more highly connected with each other. And so we assume that they form some kind of functionally related system and that supports segregation or specialization of function. Uh, but then each of these no modules has one or more hubs. So hubs are highly connected nodes uh, and these hubs are strongly interconnected with each other. Uh, so they form like their own kind of hub module that overlaps with these more specialized modules. Uh, and that's what we call a rich club. The idea being that the hubs are rich in terms of the number of connections they have. Uh, and they're a club because they're tightly interconnected with each other. And this rich club really supports uh, integration. Uh, it provides a really efficient way for disparate parts of the brain to communicate with each other. Now, we can very clearly and robustly see that with macro scale human brain imaging, but we've also seen it in uh, mesoscale track tracing data in uh, mouse, rat and macaque. We see it at the level of individual neurons and synapses in C. elegans. Uh, people have characterized these properties using uh, calcium imaging in, in, in mice and you, you see it. Uh, you also see evidence for the emergence of rich clubs in, um, uh, in vitro. In, in culture, in neuronal cultures. So it does seem like a, a fairly uh, robust multi-scale phenomenon. Um, yeah. You know, the degree to which maybe you would see that organization say within a column or not, uh, I don't think has been examined yet, but that would absolutely be a, uh, an interesting question. Yeah, and it seems it seems to suggest though that, right, that, that and, and you talk about this as well, that, that uh, that there is a cost in, in being physically distant uh, neurons being, because otherwise you could have, you can imagine a completely homogeneous brain with all the neurons doing their own thing and they having, they're forming these clubs, but they're sort of virtual uh, in some sense, but, but being physically close is, works better for maybe an energy standpoint or speed of processing standpoint, um, or even, or even the likelihood. I mean, like, like, you know, I was maybe I'll jump ahead a little bit. You talk about genetic influences versus environmental influences on these, uh, on hubs versus the the um, peripheral connections, um, uh, and it seems that you suggest that there's a genetic, more of a you know, the mapping out using the Allen Brain Atlas, the uh, genetic uh, correlates of let's say metabolic activity. Uh, it seems to form these hubs and some, it seems to correlate with these hubs, uh, which seems like there's a scaffolding that's built. And then that's formed by an environment to start the, the, the lesser connections are sort of tuned by the environment in some regard. And does that summarize that pretty well? I, I don't, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, uh, look, uh, absolutely. So the, the, there's a, there's a few things to, to unpack in there. Um, so, one is, yeah, we know that physical distance does play an important role in shaping brain connectivity. So generally areas that are near each other in space are more strongly, are more likely to be connected and more uh, strongly connected. Uh, the, you know, there's roughly an exponential decay in the probability of any two areas being connected as a function of their distance. So it decays quite rapidly. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, people have used this. So people have uh, developed models where you can, wire up a brain completely at random, but subject to this kind of distance penalty. Uh, and you will be able to grow a network that has many kind of complex properties that look like a brain. It has modules and, uh, and all, all sorts of other, other features. Yeah. But it doesn't get you all the way there 
Uh, and that's because the brain does have uh, a few extra long range connections that um, are beyond what would be predicted by that simple model. Okay. <clears throat> and these long range connections tend to be uh, concentrated on the hubs, these kind of this rich club, right? And that makes sense because these hubs are sort of integrating disparate parts of the network. You sort of think of the global air transportation network. You know, you've often got connections between a hub in one country, a hub airport in one country and a hub airport in another country. Um, the brain has a sort of similar organization. Uh, what <clears throat> what uh, appears to be the case, if, if you look at uh, C. elegans, uh, where we know the birth time of each and every neuron, it turns out that uh, all of the hub neurons are born quite early, so before the animal hatches, whereas other neurons continue to be born uh, afterwards. So it suggests that they're established quite early. Uh, there, there is some evidence in, in mammals that areas that we might think are hubs might also develop earlier. Uh, so it does suggest, and that there is a bit of evidence from, from preterm infants uh, supporting that idea as well. So there is a kind of interesting idea that perhaps these long range connections between hubs are established quite early and form an initial scaffold to which uh, other parts of the brain kind of connect up. But these connections also uh, have uh, quite a lot of plasticity. I mean, we, we've done work, there's been a lot of other people that have done work, you know, developmentally, we know that these long range connections between hubs, which tend to be association areas, have this protracted period of development into late adolescence, early adulthood. Um, and so in recent work, uh, this is, uh, it's on BioArchive at the moment, it's, uh, will hopefully be uh, in print soon. Uh, this is led by Arena Adnatkevichute, who was a PhD student in our lab at, that, at the time. Uh, we sort of asked, well, you know, given these properties of hub connections, is there something genetically special about them? And so we started with the twin data from the HCP and we just uh, use standard heritability, heritability modeling uh, to understand genetic influences on variations in connectivity strength. And so we did this across the entire connectome. And then we asked, well, is heritability on average higher for those rich links between hubs versus other type of connections? Yeah. We found this, this was indeed the case. Uh, and so it, it suggests that genetic influences on phenotypic variants in connectivity strength uh, are, are not distributed homogeneously throughout the brain, but they're really concentrated on those kind of costly, but really functionally valuable connections between hubs. Now, the, the critical thing here is, you know, the caveat is that it's genetic influences on phenotypic variants. So we're really looking at individual differences. So it doesn't mean that genes are not important for connections between non-hubs. Uh, and, you know, we certainly know that early in development, there are, you know, very strong, robust genetic patterning, patterning centers that are established in primary sensory areas that are non-hubs. Yeah. Uh, but what it does suggest is perhaps those are quite conserved and, uh, you know, the variance between people in those connections are not really driven by genes, but uh, more, more, more so environment. So they're quite plastic. Whereas uh, the connectivity between these, uh, between hubs is uh, to a large extent uh, driven by genes. Well, that's interesting. So by individual differences in the connectivity. Yeah, the individual differences in connectivity are driven by the genes and the hubs themselves, as opposed to, that's interesting. And I, I yeah, I, I, 
All right. Okay. And is there anything that characterizes the hubs in terms of, you know, you were, you were mentioning uh, in one of your papers about, um, you know, certainly they're metabolic, metabolically more active. Um, it's, it's metabolically more costly to, to have these, you can imagine the hubs have, you know, these multiple connections coming in. Is there like a higher density of neurons? Is there, is there, um, you know, somehow the structure, is there any differences as well? Yeah, so, uh, you know, this is a really hard question to tackle because you're really trying to link up macro scale and, and micro scale property and, and you know, it's, it's hard to kind of access those data. Uh, a lot of really nice work on this front has been done by Martin van den Heuvel and, you know, his team has presented some evidence to suggest that uh, the neurons in hub areas have got, uh, particularly the pyramidal neurons have got a greater dendritic complexity and a larger somal size. Uh, and there's some evidence to suggest that yeah, areas that we might think are hubs have lower neuronal density. So it's not so much uh, the, the number of neurons, but more the synaptic connectivity of those neurons. And that makes sense because we know, you know metabolic signals that we pick up with imaging are largely related to synaptic activity. Uh, and so if there's a lot of synapses in there and we expect them to be highly active because these hubs are really central elements of the network, then uh, we, we suspect that's what probably is driving it. So, so what other characteristic that you also talk about with hubs? Um, I mean, I'm going to go into also with disorders as well. But um, uh, and th this struck me as kind of counterintuitive that the looking at the the connectivity strength is higher, but the the frequency content, if I if I understood it correctly, the, the frequency content is is generally lower than. Uh, these peripheral. So if you look at connectivity between hubs or, be, or within hubs with other areas, it's lower frequency content and, and, and higher frequency content and, and, you know, peripheral connections in that sense. So to me, I'm looking at a hub and I'm thinking, oh, it's always turning on and off now and off because it's sort of like a switchboard in some sense. But in, so, in some ways you're saying maybe the long range connections are, 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 are slower in some sense. That, yeah. How would you explain that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it kind of ties to uh, really a growing body of work looking at regional timescales of, of activity. And uh, a lot of this started with, with some uh, really nice findings published by John Murray in, I believe it was the macaque, looking at electrophysiological data, where if you look at different regions along the visual hierarchy, it seems that areas that are higher up in the hierarchy have slower intrinsic timescales, just in terms of uh, the autocorrelation of uh, each um, regions firing patterns. Okay. Um, now, to to a first approximation, uh, you know the hubs of the brain tend to be areas residing in transmodal, you know, paralimbic, multimodal association cortices. So typically, areas we would think of as being near the top of the cortical hierarchy. There's some subtleties there, but generally they they tend to be the hubs, um, and so. Uh, you know, given what we see in the mouse, we would expect to see a similar pattern. There has been uh, quite a few studies recently doing similar kind of timescale analyses showing that the timescale tracks what we think of as cortical hierarchies. Uh, and in our own work, we started with, uh, this was work led by Ben Fulcher and Sarab Sethi, uh, where we took data from the mouse. Uh, we used the Allen Institute Cape Connectome based on track tracing. Uh, and then we had fMRI data. This was a collaboration with Valerio Zerbi, 
and we uh, found that areas with uh, higher in degree, so more incoming connections, tended to uh, show a greater low frequency power in, in the bold signal. And this was, you know, I mean, this was a kind of really big data trawl where we computed something over 6,000 different measures of univariate time series properties. And, you know, this was kind of the most robust effect that came out trying to relate these properties to, to structure. Uh, so it aligns, it aligns with this idea and it suggests that regions with lots of inputs have got slower time scales. And we presume that that uh, slower time scale of activity allows them to integrate information over broader time frames. Okay. Um, and you know, it aligns with the idea that these areas are involved in more complex processing that's not so stimulus driven or stimulus bound. Uh, we've also uh, been in follow-up work has also found a similar uh, association in, in human data. So. Okay. Okay. That's all right. That that's actually a, a really good point to bring out. Right. That that it's it it, it might be, you know, more different types of calculations altogether that have slower time scales. That's so. Yeah. So 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 if anything, right. I mean, in general, uh, the the concept of, uh, you know, as opposed to you know starting out with, you know, with early fMRI looking at you know just areas of activation. Now they're connected by networks and now there's hubs uh, that seem like they are communicating with other, other networks through those hubs. And so now, now just shifting gears a little bit um, with uh, pathologies. So, uh, you know, obviously you, you, the bottom line is, is to not only to understand the brain uh, and, and maybe derive principles about how the brain is organized based on this, but, but also to use this uh, to, to characterize pathology of, of some way. Uh, and, and one thing that struck me right away, you were mentioning that, uh, I think in your, your really nice review article, Connectomics of Brain Disorders in Nature Review Neuroscience in 2015, that, uh, uh, you know, the brain, when given an insult, it, it's either, it's maladaptive or adaptive. And, uh, you know, the, and, and also that uh, I was actually intrigued by the concept that the uh, the incels or, or sort of projects onto these networks and travels through the network, and then affects everything else through the network. And then, and then usually you mentioned that it's manifest in the hubs as well. But my feeling is that if it maybe the behavioral effect isn't, doesn't show up until it gets to the hub in some regard uh, to, to, but who knows, but, but, but I'm, I'm wondering what are the mechanisms? So, so you talk about the mechanisms. I was, I, I was intrigued by this, um, that, I mean, you have certainly synaptic or, or neural connectivity, but you have all kinds of other transport along these networks. And uh, it's, yeah, it's interesting how, what would be those mechanisms for, you know, if you have an incel somewhere to, is it, yeah, to, to transport that disorder along that network? Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good question and there's you know, a lot of potential different mechanisms. Uh, you know, we sort of talked about a few examples and that wasn't in, in that paper and that wasn't by any means a, an exhaustive list, but yeah. it, does, it does depend on the insult. So, um, you know, in the case of, uh, say a stroke, a focal stroke where you know you've got you've got a 
localized lesion uh, that affects the function of, of one area. Obviously, you know, the brain operates much like a symphony where the activity of one area depends on another. And so if one of the uh, members of the orchestra is not doing their job, it's going to send other connected members out of sync. Uh, and, you know, this, this phenomenon was described over 100 years ago by von Monokov, the idea of diaschesis. And, um, you know, that's, it's in a dy dynamic sense. You can compare that to a case uh, of neurodegeneration where you have uh, misfolded proteins that accumulate in the cells of one brain area, and they can then uh, travel along axons through axonal transport mechanisms to and get released out into synapses and then affect other neurons, uh, uh, leading to transneuronal spreading of, of disease. And this is something that has really come become clear in the last uh, five to 10 years that this is uh, occurring in a lot of different neurodegenerative disorders. Mm. Uh, so it does, it, it does depend on, on, on what the underlying pathological mechanism is. Uh, but you know, the net effect is that ultimately, uh, no single brain region is, is an island unto itself. And if you have dysfunction in one part of the system, it will spread to, to other areas. Yeah, and and, uh, and and I was even intrigued by you know you're mentioning you know the the concept of hyperactivation you know stressing the, the neurons and and, uh, and and causing a certain amount of de degeneration as well um, you know then one one might think oh what's you know what is a what is hyperactivation in that sense is it somehow this continuous firing as in seizures or uh, um, yeah I mean it's uh, all these things I think are on the edge of not really being fully understood I imagine. So. Yeah, I, I, it is. It is. It is a tough question. We have this kind of. I mean, I guess in, at least as far as imaging goes, we just define it in a statistical sense, right? If you've got a group where you know there's been some kind of stress, and you've got a control group, if it's you know activation statistically greater in in the former group, then you assume there's hyperactivation, and then you know that could either represent some kind of pathological change or some kind of adaptive change that's trying to compensate for an underlying deficit. Um, you know, th there is evidence that even if it is adaptive or some kind of compensation response, that over time it can uh, turn into a, a maladaptive process where you start to see degeneration. And that is potentially because if, if the neurons in that area are kind of pushing their metabolic limit, eventually uh, over an extended period of time, uh, they'll start to... Uh, be subject to various uh, oxidative mechanisms that uh, will increase their vulnerability to, to, to degeneration. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I think really having a, a very clear definition of what abnormal hyperactivation is and whether that is a, a sort of transient adaptive response or a, or, or more of a stable long long term maladaptive response. It, it's very hard to get a very uh, specific way of characterizing that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I. That's my sense as well from reading from reading this. It seems that there's, you know, there's a description of you know either you know, like for instance, sometimes your brain compensates perfectly, or sometimes it just starts to degrade, and uh, and and all depends on the pathology and the mechanisms of the pathology. It seems and. Um, and right, Alzheimer's mechanisms, especially, uh, it seems that that's uh, an example of, of this sort of thing. Um, or even, so, so even, you know, you've, you've been looking at, uh, you have a recent paper in Med, 
uh, Med Archive, um, looking at changes in functional connectivity with uh, antipsychotic treated and antipsychotic negative, native patients. Um, just simply showing this sort of disconnectivity with uh, psychosis, essentially, um, changes in connectivity. And it, it, you know, it's important to, to bring out that, that uh, you know, looking at connectivity changes across these groups is extremely sensitive and you can see these differences and, and they sort of speak to you know, tr trying to get some sort of traction in, in psychiatry in general of what are the mechanisms for this? Is there something about the specifics of the uh, connectivity disconnections uh, that speak to some sort of mechanism of, of what's going on in terms of psychosis? Right. <laughs> yeah, look, that's, <clears throat> that's a really good question. Uh, again, so I think we've gone, I think we're nearing the end of, uh, you know, the first wave of studies where we've developed these connectivity mapping tools. Uh, let's use them to understand where the changes are. So we, we get these maps. And then the question is, well, what does it mean? And, and how is it useful? Uh, so you know, from these maps, we've sort of realized that you can see connectivity changes from very early in the illness, uh, and they're often quite widespread, at least particularly with respect to functional connectivity. Uh, you know, with some evidence that certain networks might be preferentially impacted, such as corticostriatal systems, uh, default mode, uh, and, and perhaps some limbic areas. Uh, you know, I think the, the, the question is, well, how did they arise? Well, there's two questions. How did they arise and you know, what are they useful for? So can, can these changes predict anything? Now, prediction is hard. You know, typically to do that robustly, you need large samples and that's really hard to do in, in psychosis research. Uh, in terms of how we got there, I think the interesting question returning to this idea of network spread is, you know, is this a disorder that is intrinsically got dysfunction emerges in multiple regions or uh, property of multiple connected systems? Or you know, is there something that occurs focally that rapidly spreads to affect other areas? Uh, we've recently, we've done a lot of work in psychosis focused on corticostriatal systems. There's a lot of evidence to say that um, increased dopamine, uh, particularly in subcortical areas, uh, plays a really important role in the genesis of psychotic symptoms. And we uh, have done a, a range of studies looking at the functional connectivity of these systems, showing that they're altered across a wide spectrum of illness severity from high risk through to people with uh, chronic illness. And more recently, uh, this is work led by Christina Sabarodin, who was a PhD student in our lab. We've uh, tried to use DCM to, to get models of effective connectivity uh, to try to work out, you know, could we identify areas where perhaps you know there's a really high out degree that would imply that you know this is an area where uh the outgoing connectivity is disrupted and you know that would imply that area is perhaps a, a target yeah. uh what we found in in uh the early stages of psychosis when people are experiencing their first episode and this is before they're exposed to antipsychotics uh, we do see quite prominent evidence of, of uh, subcortical disconnectivity uh, so, uh, particularly in, in the striatum and midbrain. Uh, and so this is telling us that, you know, perhaps early on in the illness, uh, a lot of the pathological changes are occurring subcortically 
and then perhaps they involve cortical systems down the track. Uh, so really we're kind of in this phase now of moving beyond these general maps and trying to home in on, you know, what, what are the origins of these changes? And there's still a lot of way, a very long way to go, uh, but that's the way we're, we're, we're tackling the problem at the moment. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. And, and obviously, you know, people have to understand, right, you can, there's huge benefit in doing group studies to try to understand these mechanisms of these changes so that, you know, obviously the, the, the long range goal, I mean, people always are still, Right now, they're starting to talk about, you know, can you do this on individual subjects? Can you actually map the connectivity? And do you have enough sensitivity? Are there biomarkers uh, for susceptibility for psychosis? And even if you did know uh, exactly that what what was going on, are there any interventions uh, such as TMS or or deep brain stimulation or something like that that might treat this in a in a more direct way than medication? Um, uh, yeah. So, so yeah, there's, yeah. there's, yeah, all kinds of things. <laughs> yeah. Look, I mean, you know, T TMS is, is, is really an active area. Um, and the results, you know, in, in, in psychosis are not as clear cut as say in depression, but there is some promising signs. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, I was I enjoyed listening to your interview with Michael Fox uh, on, on, on an earlier podcast, you know, with his wonderful work using connectivity to find stimulation targets. Right. Um, you know, I think we need to develop more refined targets for uh, people with psychosis uh, and perhaps TMS will work. Non-invasive brain stimulation also in theory holds promise, but is also... Um, a challenging area because there is certainly a, a very negative public perception of, of psychosurgery uh, for historical yep. reasons. Yep. So we would, I think if, if we were to be able to get a robust evidence base to support that approach, then uh, absolutely there, there, there could be something to gain from it. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, either way, uh, right. Having a better understanding of, uh, of this and maybe a way of detecting it earlier uh, who knows? I mean, there's all kinds of interventions that are possible, and um, yeah, the ultimate goal, right, is to have you know more more traction in, in psychiatry in general, and uh, to try to you know in, in, clearly neuroimaging is lending these insights, even though right there's no treatments yet that are perfect. Um, uh, it's at least guiding this. So um, uh, uh, so along these lines, so. Um, uh, once again, you, you mentioned just really before we shift gears completely, um, uh, you know, where do you see your connectomic work going? I mean, we sort of hinted at this a little bit in terms of, uh, um, you know, maybe suggesting treatment, maybe better understanding different nuances and differences and disorders. Uh, you know, what are the hard limits? What where are the opportunities? Um, any yeah, long range perspective? <laughs> it's, uh... Uh, if you if you ever want to be wrong about something, make predictions about the future. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think if 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 I'm going to go out on a limb, um, you know, look historically we've uh, really focused on, I guess, uh, developing and refining techniques for network mapping uh, and measuring different network properties. You know, that's that's become fairly mature. You know, I mean, there's still work to do, and we'll continue to to, to work in that space. But um, you know, for, for us, the next step is trying to turn these measures into some kind of mechanistic insight. And so 
Uh, over the next few years, we'll be working a lot more with, with generative models of networks. So this is quite an exciting area where you can uh, grow networks computationally according to specific wiring rules and see if you end up with something that looks like a, a brain. Um, yeah. There's been some really promising work on this front led by people like uh, Rick Betzel and, and Petra Vertesh. Uh, and uh, we're, we're starting to play with these uh, and also linking uh, the connectome models to models of dynamics. So we've been working with, with Gustavo Deco and uh, understanding the properties of neural mass models and how they might be constrained to, uh, to generate better models of, of dynamics. Uh, so I think, you know, it's really about trying to use these models to generate actionable mechanistic insights. Uh, and in parallel, I think we will continue to try to integrate genetics with, with the imaging measures because the, the genetic data does give us, again, a, a different way of understanding the molecular basis of some of the signals that we're measuring. And it really is a bit of a, I mean, you mentioned opportunities. I think there is a lot of opportunity in this space at the moment because, you know, now with large databases such as the UK Biobank, it's possible for you know, almost anyone to do genome-wide association studies of, of particular phenotypes. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got amazing resources like the Allen Institute Gene Expression Atlas, um, and of course, you know, large-scale twin studies such as the HCP. So uh, there's really a lot of scope to uh, tackle the genetic basis of, of brain networks from, from multiple different angles. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a, I'm sure that there's nothing in that answer that I said that I sense would be wrong at all. So uh, <laughs> uh, I hope you're right. <laughs> sort of paints a picture that that yeah that I think is actually um, really there's a lot more to work to be done, and it's a mature field that you know, even you know there's even people who still doubt the utility of even using connectivity as a measure for, for but it's clear. Uh, you know, obviously from all your work and all the work of so much many other people that that while we still don't completely understand, I mean, really, I mean, we don't completely understand the nature of fMRI connectivity. It, it shows us really clear, consistent, repeatable uh, correlates to many things. So it's, uh, yeah, and, and right, uh, having these, as these databases grow, um, I think that the insights will continue. So, and, and you're right, the generative models, uh, yeah, I do sense that there's, right, if you constrain, if you have certain constraints and you could derive, you know, you could start to, to build brains from, from bottom up in some regard, not, not like, you know, not like the, you know, trying to sort of start with absolute first principles, but, you know, having these, you know, starting with sort of these, uh, uh, right, as you, ideas of, of uh, uh, you know, segregation, integration, and, and uh, uh, you know, even the question of like, you know, computation, you know, why, why does the motor cortex have to be as large as it has to be, or in terms of number of neurons or whatever. And, you know, there's a, there's a hub there in some regard, and, and there's a principle there. And, and yeah, it seems that there's all kinds of room for things like that, which may or may not touch on generative models or not, but still, I think that's, that's great. Um, Okay, so uh, in the remaining time, uh, uh, let's just shift gears completely. And, uh, you know, uh, hope, I think that this podcast will be out before OHBM, uh, uh, the, or the Organization for Human Brain Mapping meeting that's coming up uh, is the 2021 one. It's uh, the second virtual meeting. And uh, the first one was great, uh, except there was a lot uh, that, you know, 
was done on the fly and it worked. Uh, and, and there's a lot maybe that could, that we thought could be in, improved. And you've been completely instrumental uh, as far as with OHBM in helping to uh, create the second version of, uh, or organize the second version of the virtual platform. Could you talk about that a little bit, um, how it's gonna be improved and uh, what, what to expect? Yeah, sure. Look, it's um, it's it's been an exciting ride, and we're really getting to the to the pointy end now. So it's uh, it's getting quite uh, busy, but we're we're really excited about uh, this new platform. Um, you know, look, I think uh, you you've sort of explained it quite well. Uh, I was certainly very impressed last year with how the conference came off, given the time constraints yeah. and the rush <laughs> to adapt to COVID. Um, but, you know, there, there was, and obviously not many people had done online conferences before, um, but, you know, there, there was still a lot of things that, um, there, was, there was a lot of room for improvement. And so uh, following the conference, uh, Ina and uh, Randy, as chair and uh, chair-elect of OHBM, reached out and, and asked me if I'd be interested in uh, trying to form a bit of a technology task force uh, to work on a new platform. Uh, and so we managed to pull together a great group of people from just people that self-nominated as well as uh, representatives of the different OHBM interest groups, the, the special interest groups and so on. Um, and we went through a process of looking at the feedback because OHBM did send around surveys asking about the, 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 the last year's platform and you know, talking about what are the things that we would like to see in, in an online meeting. And really the the key theme that, that came out was something that really facilitates social interaction um, and, and live exchange. We, we wanted to just embrace the fact that a virtual meeting cannot just be an in-person meeting online. It's, it's fundamentally different. People don't want to spend eight hours just passively watching view, uh, Zoom yes. talks. <laughs> um, and so the question was, you know, how can we, how can we enable that? And so, we went through quite a process of consulting different uh, software companies and, and solutions. And, you know, we found that some were excellent for certain things we liked, but didn't uh, cover other items. And, you know, there was always trade-offs involved, but in the end, we settled on a, a company called Sparkle, which uh, in some respects was a bit of a risky choice because they had uh, really largely developed their platform to enable uh, concerts and, uh, more general social functions. So for example, they've done Burning Man online and, and, and things like that. Uh, but they just, you know, they provide a really unique space and set of functions that really do emphasize the social aspects. Okay. And so we've been working uh, really closely with them and that, that they had a kind of, they were very open to developing something that would be tailored to our needs. Uh, so we've been working working with them very closely uh, in trying to get everything together. And uh, I have to give a massive shout out to Daniel Margulies, who is program committee chair, but is also doing an amazing job getting all the content in there and, and, and helping helping the Sparkle team, you know, get all the features online. Um, and, you know, we, we think that it's, it's going to be uh, uh, Quite, quite a nice conference. There's, there's really nice poster functionality. There's nice social functionality. Um, uh, so we hope that it will be, uh, it, it will address uh, a lot of people's concerns about last year's meeting. 
Uh, that's not to say that I'm sure we won't get everything perfect um, and there will be room for improvement. But the nice thing is that Sparkle is open source. And so uh, that allows us to open it up to the community to develop bespoke solutions or, or features. Yeah. And, um, you know, moving forward, we can continue to improve the platform as, as we get more experience with it and feedback. Um, you know, it, it is quite a big job that none of us are expert in and we're learning as we go. Uh, and so it will probably take a, a couple of stabs at it before we get very smooth and, uh, you know, something really polished. But um, I, I do think that this year's meeting, uh, well, we're pretty excited to see how it turns out. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's um, right. The the features for, I mean, last year's meeting, it's nice to have the, I mean, obviously you also have to deal with the time zone differences as well. And, and, um, and I, you know, the ability to sort of search posters easily. And, you know, I don't know if you have Gather Town, you know, that was something that was last year. I mean, the idea of, you know, that was for social events, but the idea of having something, maybe you will uh, with regard to just browsing posters and um, things like that could be really cool. Yeah, I mean, I can give you a bit of a teaser. So uh, we, we, there, there won't be, Gather Town won't be formally integrated within the platform, the poster hall, uh, will essentially uh, come up as, as a list of thumbnails or all the posters that people can search through. And when you click on a poster, you enter a room and people will, uh, presenters will have had the option to upload a, a brief video that kind of walks people through their poster. Oh, cool. But there'll also be live times where the presenter will be, you know, quote unquote at their poster. And then you kind of enter this room and your video comes up and you can have a video chat with the presenter and other people can jump in as well. Uh, and there's also a kind of text-based chat. So each poster has its own kind of space. Uh, yeah. Essentially. Well, that's awesome. That's awesome. And, and yeah, no, okay. I'm looking forward to that. Definitely. And, 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 and actually even thinking forward in the future, I mean, it, you know, one thing this COVID has done, you know, forcing virtual conferences is the thought that, there are certain things maybe virtual conferences do better. Uh, uh, and also they allow for people who don't, can't afford traveling to, and it would be nice to continue this in some sort of hybrid fashion. Uh, it's hard to know how that, what that would look like exactly, but uh, I think that's a general sentiment that people would like to have a hybrid as well in the future. Yeah, my, my, my feeling is that a lot of these changes will be with us for quite some time. Um, and yeah. so, you know, I'm definitely looking forward to the day when we return to in-person meetings, although I'm in Australia and uh, I don't think we'll be able to leave the country for a very long time. Uh, but, um, you know, I think that there will be an online element uh, with it and what that looks like, I I'm not sure that will be for, for council to decide as we evolve and get more experience with the platform. Uh, but uh, I think it will really help to increase accessibility of the meeting for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, great. Great. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, yeah, thanks for you know, spending all the time to, to, and your expertise to, to help work on that as well. And, and right, a shout out to, to Daniel Margulis, um, who's been chairing the, the program committee and working on, on, on that, this aspect as well. But yeah. All right. Well, 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 thank you very much. I mean, this is, this is a, not only a great perspective of your work and your book, but also, um, kind of a perspective of, you know, I'm, you know, we've been talking to a number of people who are doing uh, uh, sort of network approaches to fMRI and, and each one is unique. Uh, and they all are both insightful and hopeful 
in terms of what you can do. So, and that's, it's always good to hear. So yeah, well, thank you very much for, for coming on and uh, um, yeah, look forward to seeing your work in the future, maybe at OHBM as well. So yeah, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. All right. Well, thanks.